in the beginning of 2017, I ended up on a panel, a television panel, with a politician who was quite Islamophobic and was saying things like, well, we should ban Muslims, we should ban, you know, anyone that follows Sharia law. I'd been hearing this sort of thing ad nauseum since I was 10 years old and decided to wear the headscarf. And I was like, oh, come on, you don't even know what you're talking about. And I said to me, Islam is the most feminist religion because that is what I believe. And this clip went viral. It went incandescently viral. And all of a sudden, I became, I started at least to become public enemy number one. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I'll sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. I'm Yasmin Abdel-Majid, working with all sorts of people on how to build a fairer, safer world for us all. Yasmin is a Sudanese-Australian engineer and writer. She was born in Sudan and her family moved to Brisbane, Australia when she was a baby. So many of us are the products of people that have decided to give everything up for the hope that things will be better. Not the guarantee. You may recognize Yasmin for her TEDx talk on unconscious bias, where she asks, what does my headscarf mean to you? She works as a writer and broadcaster based in London. But her career has had some surprising turns and even some upsets. She's a trained mechanical engineer, an amateur race car driver, and has worked in oil rigs in Australia. Yasmin essentially fled from Australia to the United Kingdom in 2017 after a Facebook post she wrote went viral. And now getting Yasmined is a term that people use when they don't want to get harassed and harangued in the public media in Australia. Because it was so awful. Because 200,000 words were written about me in the space of a year in the press. 200,000 words is two full novels. There were even petitions and some politicians calling for her deportation. I lost every single job that I had. I could no longer earn money in Australia. In 2017, Yasmin called herself the most hated Muslim woman in Australia. Yasmin has written a memoir, and most recently, she wrote a young adult novel about the immigration experience called You Must Be Layla. Yasmin and I connected via two studios, me in New York and her in London. You recently published a book, You Must Be Layla. You know, it's interesting you wrote this book several years after you wrote your own memoir. Mm. So I'm wondering if the act of writing pulled something out of you that surprised you. You Must Be Layla is my first work of fiction. And it follows the story of a young Sudanese uh, girl who's growing up in Australia, in Brisbane. So nothing like me at all. And um, so she gets a scholarship uh, to a fancy private school and almost immediately runs into trouble. It was also really interesting the time that I wrote You Must Be Layla was right after I was coming out, and I'm sure we'll talk about it shortly, of quite a traumatic year myself. 2017 was a big year for me in lots of different ways. And there was so much going on that I literally couldn't sit down and write anything because I, if I had started writing one thing, uh, you know, it felt like I would be putting a hole in a dam. I couldn't, you know, and the wall would simply collapse. But fiction, I could write fiction. I could explore what it would be like to forgive or not forgive through the eyes of a 13-year-old kid. I could explore issues of identity in a way that wasn't exposing me personally. 
that was a surprise. The amount that I enjoyed that, I think, well, it's why I'm writing a sequel. Um, Yay. Mazel tov. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. My publishers were like, would you like to write another one? And so so that's what I'm doing now. And it is really, really interesting exploring, um, exploring possibility in that way. You wrote a memoir in 2016 called Yasmin's Story. And in it, you one of the things that I found really fascinating, and I could also maybe picture myself uh, in this setting. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about your parents who, you know, left Sudan for Australia and how it was through public settings, like especially dinners with family friends. They answered questions directly about why they came to Australia in mm-hmm. a way that they maybe didn't um, you know, talk about it to their kids. What did you piece together from those conversations about their decision to move and maybe give a little context to, you know, Sudan in 1989? Mm. So the Sudan of today is worlds apart to the country that my parents grew up in, sadly, I think, in many ways. My parents grew up in a country where university education was free, where the schools and and colleges they went to were respected around the world where they could get an incredibly robust education and get scholarships to Oxford or Cambridge or any university they wanted. They grew up in a world of possibility. And then in 1989, Omar al-Bashir, I'm pretty sure it's 1989 because they, they also got married in 1989. But, um, oh, well, yes. I underlined it in your... All right, so it's definitely uh, 1989. Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, Taylor Swift and Bashir in the same year? How is that possible? The world really yeah. is dynamic. Swings and, and roundabouts. <laughs> so, yeah. It's three-dimensional. <laughs> so then in 1989, Omar al-Bashir came into power. And Bashir was backed by the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood are essentially an organization that believes in a particular type of very increasingly hardline ideas of what political Islam looks like and what running a country through the lens of the of political Islam should be like. And so Bashir was essentially a dictator and he was also deeply corrupt and he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of his own countrymen. And so my parents witnessed his coup. In fact, um, I was born... Uh, under curfew. My dad's driving through like this checkpoint and like a soldier points a gun at his face. He's like, why are you out after 11? And my mom's like, I'm in labor. And the guy's like, fine, it's fine. Just go, just go. <laughs> yeah, even a security guard. Yeah, even, he's just like, just fine, let's go. <laughs> and so the context really is, is that my parents sort of found themselves in a position where economically they didn't think it was sustainable. But also my mum had started to make some pretty powerful enemies. And they were like, okay, we need to find a way out. And it just so happened that my mum had a pen pal in Australia. She'd been literally writing letters to this family back and forth for, you know, the last few years. And that family helped us migrate to Australia. And that's essentially how we ended up in Australia. We stayed at their house for for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's funny how the world works. Yeah, one thing about your parents' story, to get out of Sudan, they went to Egypt on, they, they packed bags like as if they were going for a weekend trip and went to Egypt and they didn't even tell much of their extended family their plan yeah. to to go to Australia. Well, they had to sneak out. 
You know, I'm about the same age now that my parents were when they left. And to think that one day I would just pack my bags and leave the country, it just must have been the biggest leap of faith. I know, and I I struggle with, like, how many shoes to bring on a weekend trip, you know, to take <laughs> exactly, up the bag. Exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> how do I you mean, pack for the rest of your life, you know? Like, yeah. Casually, right. <laughs> The the story is almost parallel to how my great-grandparents, um, who my sister and I are named for, Rose and Sam, um, left Russia during the Russian Revolution. They pretended they were going to no a wedding way. with their baby, um, wow. and they crossed into Romania, and then from there worked their way to, to America over the course of two years. And mm. I found that, like, you know over the course of 100 years across continents. But yet, you know, the story of a young couple who believe that they can give more to their children and start a new dream, I found that really touching. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Like, the story of migration is such a human story. And it's really a story driven by by love and by hope and by optimism and by belief in a better future. And I, I think that is incredibly astounding. And, you know, your experience growing up in Australia, they, I mean, I don't, I think it's only when you, when we become adults that we realize the sacrifices our parents mm. make. I mean, when your parents went to Australia, they, you know, came as skilled workers, yet they had to give up their professions to work in a new country. And your mother was an architect and your dad an engineer. And, you know, had to adopt a totally new life um, to to live in Brisbane. And, you know, that's an adjustment, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the on the young kids in the in the family. And that's something that you talk a lot about uh, in your writing. You know, I think that's that's also one of the hard things when we talk about immigration or we talk about migrant families is it's not just one story. There's all of these layers of experiences. But, you know, I mean, like, it's fascinating. I remember writing something um, in the book around, you know, this this pressure that we put on ourselves as, as children of migrants um, to make sure that we live up to the sacrifice, that we do enough to live up to the sacrifice that they've made. And I remember talking to my mom about it because my mom hasn't actually read the book. And she looked at me and she was like, no, you can't think that we did this only for you and and not for ourselves as well. She was Mm -hmm. like, my life is so different to what it would have been in in Sudan. It gave me freedom in a way. It gave me the permission to not feel like my life is beholden to my parents or that I must live my life for my parents because I think that that, you know, we live, we come from very collectivist societies and yet our lives were very different in Brisbane. And so we couldn't, I couldn't judge how I lived my life by the same way that say my cousins did who still lived in Sudan, for example. And so part of it, yeah, was having the capacity to have the conversations with my parents to say, hey, I feel like I owe my life to you and having them reply and say, you know, yes, but it's okay. We we give you the permission to to live it for yourself. And, and it reminds me actually, and I haven't thought about this in a long time, my dad at my 21st birthday, um, he, my friends asked him to make a speech and he, he isn't a huge speech guy, but I remember he got up and he sort of like rubbed his hands together and he was like, look, having a kid is like polishing a rough rock. You don't know what it's going to turn out to be 
But if you polish it in the right way, you'll find the gem. <laughs> Dad dropped the mic at your birthday. Yeah, literally, he was like, boom, we out here. One of the things that you talk about so lovingly uh, is your dad and spending a lot of time around him while he fixed things or built things or worked on his car. And so he's an engineer and you also um, became a mechanical engineer. I've heard architects describe that they can think in 3D, that they can visualize, you know, the turns of the parking garage in their mind before they put it on paper. And for mechanical engineers, I think that there's this love of understanding how something works. Um, What's an example of a machine and how it works that really intrigues your brain? Mm, Uh, What an interesting question. Um, As you were talking about that, I really, I had a smile on my face because when I was nine, my dad gave me a, like a book about Excel uh, as my birthday (laughs) present. (laughs) But also like on brand. (laughs) Exactly. Very on brand. Um, I think, you know, it's funny. My first thought when you said that was to think of cars. Like cars um, have been my love since. Ah, that's when you started loving cars. That's when I said, I'll tell you what though, it is cars, but, and I'm going to feel like I'm betraying myself by saying this, an engine is an engine is an engine. You know, like you can get a rotary engine, you can get a petrol engine, you can get a diesel engine, conventional. But what's really cool, what I actually really love, I love stuff that makes energy. The way a um, power plant works, for example, is that you burn coal and the the heat heats up water and then the water becomes steam and that steam drives a turbine which creates electricity. So there's a reaction and all of a sudden there's this immense amount of energy that you can use to power a city. In the change, there is magic. You know, how wild is that? And then it just turned out I really loved oil and gas, which was not what I expected. And describe the rig, because it's very physical to work in oil and gas. Mm. And it's also isolating. Yeah. So I was 21 when I started, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so I would be sent out to the middle of the desert or to random islands, and you would have a rig and then sort of maybe a, a few miles away you would have your camp. 20 to 30, maybe 40 guys. So you would do 12 hours and then you would go to your camp for 12 hours and then work again. The other thing I should mention as well was that I was the first woman they'd hired as an engineer in my department in Australia. And wow. so, yeah, which is wild. It was 2012. Everyone has their own story about why they're out there. And so people look at me turning up, this fresh-faced black Muslim woman who's wearing the weird thing on her head and is smiling all the time. And to be honest, actually, it's where I started writing. I started a blog because I had all this kind of like time on my own. It's where I started to learn to write. And I don't know if I would have had that time in any other job, right? Or or like a job that really forces you to be reflective. Right. That isolation gave me the space to reflect and to think in a way that I'm only just starting to appreciate now. I mean, you also talk about this uh, in your book, but you learned at a young age of um, how to show your street cred in a way, like how to talk about cars or how to talk about engines in a way to be a, a part of the group. 
working on the rig or working in motorsports or on the race team or even in woodworking shop when you're, you know, middle and high school. I find it really fascinating that while you're on an oil rig, you're internally wrestling with some days I have these battles and I want to fight them and other days I just kind of go along with the jokes. How do you talk about that wrestling? Mm. Great question. And I I don't necessarily think it's something that I've fully resolved even now. You become very good at reading the room because your survival depends on it. And on an oil rig, it's very real. Because if the guys don't like you, they can make your life hell. They can really make your life hell. And you've got nowhere (laughs) to go, sis. Like like, what? I mean... They can lock you up in the portaloo and let you, like, ha- <laughs> oh just, like, God. chill there for the entire shift. They can, like, put stuff in your food. They can block the drainage in your room so that it floods. Like, it's not even just about kind of, like, who looks like they fit on the surface, but, like, how you fit in the pecking order or how you fit in the puzzle that is that environment. And every rig is different. And I found that out when I went from being... You know, someone on the lowest end of the spectrum on the oil rig in MWD to being a drilling engineer, where I was now giving people instructions when, when I was now in a position of leadership, then all of a sudden, all that credibility that I'd learned to build, it didn't work. And that I found really tough because all the ways that I'd learned to survive no longer were relevant. You had always been a mate. Right. I'd always been one of the boys. So is it worth, like, ascending? I don't know, Rose. And I think that everyone has to make their own call about it. And what I think I was looking for was a sense of belonging, you know. And funnily enough, I found it on the rigs. And I loved that. I reveled in it. And then all of a sudden, I was no longer belonging. And not only was I an outsider, but I was disliked and hated simply because of my position. Even more so because of all my differences. These were now emphasised and reinforced because of the difference in our rank. And... That took me by surprise. You know, I kind of want to uh, jump to Anzac Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I yeah. saying that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. You know I mean, how Americans think? Yeah. <laughs> Americans always think that, like, everyone knows every single state and then, and like, every single capital and, like, our big-ass country. And then I'm like, am I saying your ma- major <laughs> holiday correctly? You know? No, it's all good. Well, essentially, I was just doing things, you know, feeling things out for a year before, in my mind, I would go back to engineering. But then a couple of things happened. At the end of 2016, I um, I wrote a, a blog post about cultural appropriation, and that went viral. Um, but what it did, well, more importantly, what it did was it essentially raised the flag for some of the conservative media um, in Australia, it, it, it made them pay attention because they were like, oh, here's somebody who, who's saying some things that we don't approve of on a public platform because the blog post was picked up by The Guardian. And then a couple of months later, in the beginning of 2017, I ended up uh, on a panel, a television panel, with a politician who was quite Islamophobic and was saying things like, well, we should ban Muslims, we should ban, you know, anyone that follows Sharia law, blah, 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 blah. Which there's so many things wrong with that statement yeah. that we would be here for the rest of the academic, <laughs> you know, year, breaking Literally. that down. Exactly. Um, you know, and at the same clip where you, what you're talking about, you also say, 
I don't believe that someone who doesn't know anything about my faith can negate my rights as a human being. Mm. And so you're really you really were trying to take the conversation back to the base level of, you know, putting your misunderstandings aside. Mm. These kinds of words and these bad facts have real violent implications on others, especially in a post 9-11 world. A hundred percent. And I said to me, Islam is the most feminist religion because that is what I believe. And this clip went viral. It went incandescently viral. Like it, the original video got like 12 million views in a matter of days. And all of a sudden I became, I started at least to become public enemy number one. I was I was scrolling through Twitter a couple of days later and I saw my face on the front page of The Australian, which is the, the broadsheet. And I was like, oh no, this must be a joke. And I remember my my stomach dropped out of my body. Papers started calling my friends and anyone that I'd ever worked with. They tried to, like, dig any dirt they could. They essentially implied that I was a terrorist or that I was communicating with terrorists. And that became my life. What's incredible to me is that people who don't know you or don't know your background just see you as a a spokesperson Mm. for something that you've tried your whole life to quote-unquote outperform. Yeah. And I think that sort of began the unraveling. So I I think it was mid-February 2017, and then Anzac Day is the 25th of April. So Anzac Day is a day commemorating a particular battle in Gallipoli in World War I. Anzac is the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. And it's a day of remembrance, essentially. You know, it's a public holiday. And I wake up on Anzac morning when I thought, you know what, I should put something on my Facebook page just to commemorate the day. And I write, lest we forget. So then in brackets underneath, I write, Manus Nauru, Syria, Palestine. Because yes, it's about Gallipoli, but it's also a day about war. Manus and Nauru are the detention camps, the prison camps that Australia has and puts any asylum seeker who tries to get to Australia by boat for indefinite detention. It's a humanitarian crisis. A couple of hours later, a friend of mine says to me, hey, Yasmin, you know that post is quite offensive, actually. And it it must only have been about an hour afterwards. Um, So I go onto my Facebook page, I delete the comment, um, I apologise unreservedly for any offence caused, and I take a nap. And as I like to joke, it was the last nap that I ever took because I woke up and I found myself on the front page of every single paper in Australia. I all of a sudden was branded as this ungrateful, un-Australian, you know, controversial Muslim activist who had the gall to denigrate our Anzac diggers. The gamut of people who commented from the prime minister to the immigration minister to politicians who who said that I should self-deport and so on and so on. And now this sort of thing in a normal news cycle would be really over in 24 hours. It went on from Anzac Day until I left the country in September that year. I hadn't said anything new. Numerous people had said similar things about Anzac Day in the past. I, up until that point, I'd been the model minority. First class honours of mechanical engineering and ran a youth organisation and I won Young Queenslander of the Year or Young Australian of the Year for my state because I thought if I just work hard enough, that'll be the way that we're accepted. But perhaps I got a little too close to the sun. And now getting Yasmined is a term 
that people use when they don't want to get harassed and harangued in the public media in Australia because it was so awful. Because when I lost my job on the broadcaster, the immigration minister said, one down, many to go. Oh, my God. When I wrote, Did you lose your job over this? I, I lost every single job that I had. I could no longer earn money in Australia. Was there a defining moment that you, you decided... I'm going to leave and it's not quitting? Or was it really emotional to leave? I think, to give you a bit of an insight into kind of where my headspace was at the time, I felt completely isolated because every morning I would wake up and there would be another article written about me or written about something to do with me. You know, there were writers and women of colour who defended me. But the institutions of power that I had aligned myself with over the years, they were nowhere to be seen. And so I felt... heartbreaking. I felt betrayed. I felt so heartbroken and betrayed. I felt betrayed by my country. So I felt my understanding of the world was shattered. My identity, my complete, my sense of self was shattered. I had no idea who I was anymore because my understanding of the world was I just work hard enough and I will be and I will have earned my place. But clearly this was not true. So it just so happened that I had been invited to speak at an event in London in about August that year. So I get on the plane and I go to London and I'm speaking to this group of people and I'm telling them about what's going on in Australia. One of them turns around and says to me, why don't you move here? That would never happen here. At the very least, you would have people defending you. We would defend you. And at that point, I'd lost every job I had. At that point, I wasn't living with my family. I wasn't seeing most of my friends. And I walked out of that event and I was like, I'm going to move to London. Wow. That was it. She gave you the idea that you could belong somewhere else, somewhere new. Yeah. And she also gave me the idea that I had a choice in this because up until that moment, uh. I felt completely powerless. And it's a really like as somebody who's incredible, my, my identity is also really built in with my independence. For me to not feel like I had choice and agency was debilitating. But all of a sudden I could make a choice that was for me. So I went, I slept on it and I woke up the next day and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I'm moving to London. She was like, I think that's a good idea. Oh, did that surprise you? Yeah. Yeah, I think it did. Um, it's funny, though. My mum was visiting a few weeks ago, and um, and I've just gotten my visa to stay in the UK for a, little, for a few years longer because I was only on a, a two-year visa, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to stay. I was like, oh, what does it feel like for you to be here? She was like, I always thought you were going to come back. And it's strange. I think I'm just starting to realise that you've actually left. And I think for her, it's really sad that I too had to escape the persecution of a government, you know, that I too had to leave for a better life. And I think that's something that she doesn't fully know how to grapple with because for her and my father, uprooting their lives from Sudan and starting somewhere else, that was supposed to be for us, for the kids, for a better life. And it was for a while. But I think what happened in 2017 shattered her sense of safety as well. And there's a great sadness for her around having to see history repeat itself.
I see this tension in using your platform that has also been elevated and been under the spotlight because of outrage. So there's this platform that you that you use wisely, that you use with grace, that you use with humor, but it's also been built on emotional turmoil. If you were to do it all over again and not have the outrage and not have been, as you say, public enemy number one, but you had less of a platform, would you do it differently? Mm. I think my experience in 2017, um, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. You know, there are big chunks of that year that I don't remember. I think it's a re- it's a really tough question because I think I wouldn't be who I was today without what happened in 2017. What 2017 gave me was a whole new framework and understanding for how the world worked. It laid bare the ugliness. Well, it also showed me I could live another life. I could learn to find joy again. I didn't laugh for a really long time. I didn't write for a really long time. It's really awful to have your entire country turn around and say that you're the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And it's really awful to feel rejected from your home and to not be able to think of that place as a place of safety anymore. That's not something that goes away. And that's something that I'm still learning to deal with. And so I think perhaps the way that I think about it now is that it has given me the metal, it has given me the strength to know what I'm made out of. And I don't necessarily want to go back to that place again, but I'm not afraid of it. It's less actually about the platform. It's more actually about who I became out of it. It's about the fact that I know that I can rely on myself But I also know that there are others that I can rely on and it's okay for me to rely on them. It gave me an opportunity to start again on my own terms. I have a faith in myself and the strength that my God has given me. I think I look back at my memoir that I wrote in 2016 and the things that I I wrote and I experienced before then and, and it all feels like it's a different person. But that's okay. Your answer really surprises me. Um is almost like a spiritual answer. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Islam means submission. Yeah. Yeah. And Muslim means one who submits. I remember asking my mom when things were really bad. I was like, why is Allah doing this to me? And my mom was like, well, Allah's clearly preparing you for something. (laughs) Damn, mom. (laughs) I was like, oh my God. If I'm being prepared for something at 25, what on earth does life have in store for me? <laughs> so for the lightning round, um, that I have a f- few quick questions for you. I like to say that it's called truth or truth. <laughs> uh, we go light after we go deep. Um, dream car. Corvette Stingray, 1969. (laughs) The nickname that your father calls you in Yasmin's story, Kalas, K-H-A-L-A-S? Oh, Kalas. 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 That's kind of like um, enough or like that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Too much. (laughs) Uh, Does the Muslim uh, diaspora need supportive allies or is that the wrong question? I think it is the wrong question. I think the question is, 
how do we build a society that doesn't need enemies for a sense of self? Mm. I hear congratulations are in order. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to, to being married to someone I love very much, which is kind of sweet and corny and something I never thought I would ever say. So here we are. <laughs> Marriage without borders. Exactly. <laughs> you can follow Yasmeen and join in the conversation. We'd love to know what you think. She's at Yasmeen underscore A. That's Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Sabine Jensen and good luck at your new job. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis and the iHeart team and Gail Reed. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you haven't already, you should definitely check out Stuff You Missed in History Class, which our executive producer, Holly Fry, is the co-host of. And every episode, which is twice a week, they talk about something extraordinary that happened in history. You should definitely add it to your regular listens. You know, I've known you for a while, but it was it's amazing to get to know you better in like a really can't help it slightly academic way. <laughs> no, it's yeah, no. <laughs> it's in us. <laughs> I'll talk to you Bye. soon. Bye.